If you have your copy of God's Word, would you turn with me to Ruth chapter 3? Ruth chapter 3. This morning we're going to read the passage kind of as we go. And so we're just going to start with the first five verses there in Ruth chapter 3. If, if you don't have your Bibles, it'll be on the screen. Verse 1, Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down. And he will tell you what to do. And she replied, all that you say, I will do. Let's pray to the Lord together. Heavenly Father, how good it is that we can think back over the course of our lives and realize that we have witnessed you moving mountains. How comforting it is to us, Lord, as we think back through hard times and difficulties and what seemingly was insurmountable in our lives and when we felt like we were unraveling and coming apart as people and to remember that you held us fast. And Father, what gives us even greater hope than that is to know that that is just the first fruit of what we will know for all eternity. That one day we will go home and there will be no tears and there will be no sorrow and there will be no grief and there will be no more hard days. There will only be the experience of you all the time, around the clock, holding us fast, drawing us near that we can absorb your faithfulness. Declare your greatness. And so, Father, this morning, that, that is our duty as Christians. To find such delight and joy in you that we can't help but express it with the fullness of who we are. God, open your word to us now. Do what only the Spirit can do through us and in us. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. So as most of you know, I was a youth pastor for eight years. And I remember exactly the moment where I was when I realized that I may not be a youth pastor much longer. So there, we were on a Wednesday night. And we were getting ready for our, our Wednesday night service, and that was really our big uh, youth service over the course of the week. It happened on Wednesday nights, and, and so I was geared up, and I was preaching very similarly to, to, to what I'm doing right now. And Andrew was, was geared up to, to lead us in worship. He was our, our youth worship pastor uh, at the time. And I noticed what is a pretty common sight in youth ministry, especially if you have kind of a youth group of any size at all, is every now and then there will be one emotional kid with all the other kids kind of circled around him. And so I remember on this particular Wednesday there was a young girl, an 8th grade girl, and she was sitting there and, and she was crying and, and all of the other posse, the rest of her posse was all kind of circled around her and they're patting on her back and I can tell they're advising and some are sitting in front of her and some are sitting behind her. And I kind of just overlooked it for a little while because these things a lot of the time have a way of working themselves out, you know. 
And so I kind of kept going around talking to everybody, and and it kind of lingered long enough where I realized, yeah, I'm going to have to step in there kind of thing. You know what I'm talking about? And and so I go over there, and I say, sweetheart, what, what's, what's going on? What's the matter? Are, are you okay? And she says, I loved him. I loved him. And apparently what had happened over the course of the day, that day at school, her, her man, her Prince Charming, had, had broken her heart. And he had told her they were no longer an item and they were not going to be going to the homecoming dance together. And I thought, okay, here this girl is. And she's in real pain. Okay, she's, I, I, I'm not, I, I don't play about that. Like, I, I understand. It is real pain. I, I remember feeling that way, right? I remember feeling like the whole world had crashed around her. But she's sitting there, and I thought, Cody, how many of these have you done in your lifetime now? I mean, I, I can't even count as a youth pastor how many times I would go put my arm around young man, young woman, and say, hey, it's okay, it's not the end of the world, there's more fish in the sea, it's, God has a plan, the, the whole thing. And, and so she's sitting here, and she's crying, and she's bawling her eyes out, and I could just feel the empathy in me draining out of my soul. And she, cause she's saying, I love him, and all I wanted to say is, no, you don't! You don't love him. You're excited about him. You're attracted to him. You feel emotional about him, but you don't love him. And I, you know, of course, though, I didn't, I didn't do that. I'm, I'm more pastoral than that, I hope. I put on my, my face and comforted her. But I thought, I just don't know how many more of these I have in me. I just don't know how many more of these that I, that I have in me. And so what nobody told me is that adults are basically the same. I thought all y'all had it figured out. Wrong, right? But I point that out because it's, it's kind of a picture of the way we define love. Love seems to be one of those things that all of us know that we're seeking. All of us know that we're pursuing, but none of us seem quite sure what it actually looks like. None of us seem actually quite sure on how it is that we're supposed to define it so that we can have real handles and know exactly what it is that we're pursuing, know exactly what it is that we're seeking, and know how it is that we can express it when we have the opportunity. And I think that's really one of the main purposes that God gives us the book of Ruth for us to be able to see. He gives us the book of Ruth so that we can begin to understand his love for us. And understanding his love for us, then we're able to understand how it is that we're supposed to express that love to one another. So it gives us an ability to begin defining love in a way that is helpful, that is true, that that is tangible and concrete. A way that we can begin pursuing this type of love. Not only pursuing it, though, enjoying it, enjoying the love that God has offered us, enjoying the love as we experience it in our relationships with one another, and then expressing it and reciprocating that love with one another. And so what I want us to do is I want us to see, as we kind of reach chapter 3 in the book of Ruth, we're really hitting the, the fever pitch, reaching a fever pitch of the narrative in Ruth. And we're able to really begin to drill down on exactly what love is. So the first thing that I want you to see this morning is that love is responsible. That love is responsible. It says there in verse 1, Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest 
for you, that it may be well with you. Think about what those words indicate. That what you have here is you have Naomi and she is pursuing and taking responsibility for the well-being and rest of Ruth. Of someone else, of another person. And it's beautiful, isn't it? So when it says here, rest, the concept of rest here is very closely linked with security. So what she's saying is, is I want you to be secure. I want, you, I want to know in my heart that you're okay. And not only do I want to know in my heart that you're okay, I want you to know in your heart that you're going to be okay. That everything is alright. And, and what she would have had in her mind, and this is a word that's very closely, closely related throughout the Old Testament with the concept of marriage. Particularly in that day, a woman's security was found in the kindness, in the goodness of a husband. If she had a bad husband, if she had a poor husband, if she had an unfaithful husband, then, the secure, then she was an insecure woman. If she, like in Ruth's case, in Naomi's case, had lost her husband, now she is in a precarious position, a place of insecurity. There's, there's no one that can provide for her, no one that can protect her, no one that can defend her, and so she is left to worry. But there, there's, there's more to the picture than that. There's also in this idea, and we're going to get into this a lot more next week, but there's this idea of this kinsman redeemer. Not only is there the insecurity of this daily provision and this daily protection that a, a woman of antiquity would have experienced apart from a husband, there's also this idea as a, one of the people of God that the line has died with her husband. That now she has no ability to carry forward the inheritance from the Lord. She has no ability to carry forward his land and his birthright forward with an heir. The family name was coming to a close. The experience of the covenant blessings was coming to an end within that family. And so what, what Naomi has in mind is that daily security, that daily rest. And also she has insecurity, something that's, that's more eternal. Something, something that is longer lasting than life itself. That, that what she's talking about, when she's talking about rest, is she's talking about rest not from work, but from worry. Rest not from work, but from worry. The kind of rest that you, you can experience where you no longer feel like you have the weight of the world on your shoulders. When you don't feel like you're carrying more than you can bear. When you don't feel like everything in life is all dependent and hinged upon you and what you do and on how strong you are and on how able you are and on what you can provide and on how good you can be and on how moral you are. It's the rest of knowing I'm okay. I'm taken care of. I'm protected. I, I am defended. I am assured. That in other words, what Naomi is seeking for Ruth is what all of you are seeking for yourselves. Rightly so. There's nothing wrong with that. But what differentiates love from unlove is love says, I'm not just concerned about that for myself. I'm concerned about that for you. I care about your well-being. I care about your worries. I care about your rest. I, I take responsibility in my life to try to bring comfort and ease and, and security into 
your life. In fact, as we sit and we look at Naomi, we're, we're struck by the picture. This is a person that she really doesn't have responsibility for. But because Ruth has obligated herself to Naomi, here, here we see that Naomi is reciprocating that. And Naomi is obligating herself to Ruth and saying, I'm going to make your happiness my business. And in fact, this is a picture of what we understand the Lord to do. This is who he is. This is how he works. The Lord had taken responsibility for Israel, hadn't he? He didn't owe them anything. They, they, they weren't his problem. The Lord coexisted, uh, the, the Lord existed without Israel in all eternity with perfect harmony, with perfect peace, with perfect completion. He didn't need them. But he said, I want them. I desire them. I'm going to commit myself to them. I'm going to pursue their well-being. I'm going to make sure that if, if they will give me all of their hearts, if they, will protect, if they will put all of their hopes in me, then I will secure their hopes. I will make it so they can rest. They will be my people. I will be their God. If, if they will give me all of their hearts, if they will obey me, if they will walk in my ways, if they will go where I tell them to go and do what I tell them to do, they'll never wonder where their meals are coming from. They'll, they'll never not be delivered from their enemies. They'll, they'll never have a time in which famine will overtake them. They'll never have a time in which pestilence is more than what they can bear because they will be my people. And if I have to send the bread from heaven, if I have to send the water out of the rock, I will make sure that my people have what they need. They won't have to worry. They can rest from all that. They can rest from all that. In fact, that's what Christ offers to us. That's the Christ. So what we see here is a portrait of how Israel knew the Lord and a foreshadowing of how we would know Christ. Christ says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Do you see the connection? I will give you rest. Not from work. There's dignity in work. There's good in work. I will give you rest from worry. I will give you rest from thinking that you have to be good enough to get to God. I will give you rest from feeling as though you have to bear the weight of your own sin. I will give you rest from feeling like you have to carry your shame with you in your pocket everywhere you go. And then every time you begin to have the smallest feeling of joy, you pull out that shame and remind yourself of the misery that you ought to feel. I will give you rest from those demons. I will give you rest from the spiritual oppression that is on this world. I will give you assurance as you walk and fight in the spiritual battles. I will bring you rest. Bring your burdens. Bring your heavy-heartedness. Bring your difficulties. Bring them to me. Let me have them. Let, let me assure you. Let me comfort you. Y'all, that's how you're loved. That's how you're loved. Can you just stop for just a second and just rest in Jesus? Can you just stop for just a second and take whatever accusing conscience you have right now and just say, you don't win, Jesus does. Can you look at the shame that you're carrying around in your pockets and pull it out and say, today, today you will not discourage me because Christ has brought me rest. You see, that's how you're loved, and that's how you're supposed to love. That's how you're loved, and that's how you're supposed to love. That is, the Christian life is, at one and the same time, a relief and a responsibility. 
Here, here's the best way I know to, to describe it as I was thinking about it this week. I, I remember today is a big day in the Hill household. You'll notice my, my in-laws are here now. My mom and dad are not able to be here. They're battling COVID. God bless them, right? Love you, mom. Hope you're watching. Um, but today is a big day in the Hill household because we are baptizing Gracie Kate. That moment that I've been praying for for nine months before she ever came into this world, that's going to happen today. And so I was thinking about the very first time that I held her in my arms at St. Vincent's, you know, that, that moment when, when I really just, it, it kind of settled in with me, oh my goodness, this thing's coming home with me. You know, y'all, y'all been there before if you've, if you've had kids, right? And, and you're sitting there and you, you're holding her and there's all kinds of thoughts and all kinds of emotions that you're experiencing them at that moment. And one of the things that I remember experiencing was, this is how my parents feel about me, right? This is how mom and dad love me. They've, they've tried to explain it. They've tried to tell me. They've always said, you really can't understand. And I always told them that I did understand and I did get it and I did know that they love them. And then I'm holding this little bitty creature in my arm and I don't even know her yet. And yet I know I would die right now in her place. Right? And you just think, that's how I'm loved. That's how I'm loved. And, and I know that all of you don't come from, from healthy situations, but that's, that, that's the design that God intends. That we can say, right? And there's a relief that sweeps over you. There's a joy that sweeps over you. There, there's power in being loved like that, isn't there? there? There is joy in being loved like that. And yet, you can't help but as you hold that little creature in your hands and you, you have that sense of relief and that sense of awe and that sense of joy to think, Oh, but you better believe I'm going to love you like that. In other words, there's a sense in which you want to pay it forward, isn't there? You want to take that love that you've known and that love that you've received, and you want to make sure that that little girl that you're holding in your hands, that she never has to worry about anything, that she is protected, that she is defended, that she is provided for. See, that's what it means to love your neighbor as yourself. That I have been loved by God. I have been relieved by Christ. I have been set free in the gospel. And so now it is my duty, my responsibility. In fact, it is my joy and privilege to pay it forward and to begin pursuing the good and the freedom and the rest and the joy of my neighbor, of my friends, of my children, of my co-workers, just as vigorously is I have pursued my own. That to love is to take responsibility for someone else's well-being. But it's not just that. It's, it's also that you would bear one another's burdens. We see that in Naomi as well. It says, uh, he, she goes, he says, is, is Boaz, is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you were? Is he not our relative? Now, this is interesting, isn't it? Because here's what Naomi is doing with the word our. And, and it seems like such a small, subtle word. And I think that's one of the reasons that it's so good when you're uh, meditating on the Bible to highlight each word in a verse and really kind of zero in on that word and see what that word has to offer. Because the word our here is not as seemingly unsuspecting as you might think. That here, what Naomi is communicating is a corporate solidarity between her and, or a solidarity between uh, she and Ruth, she's saying, this isn't just your problem. 
this is my problem. And, and your grief is not just your grief. Your grief is my grief. Your hardship is not just your hardship. Your hardship is my hardship. So, so here's a picture of Naomi. And Naomi has lost more than what Ruth has lost. She's lost her husband. She's lost her two sons. And yet, even in the midst of her own grief, profound as it must have been, debilitating as it must have seemed, she said, can I bear that burden with you, Ruth? Can I step into your sadness with you? Can I step into your grief with you? Can I join you in your suffering? Can I join you in the misery of your life? Can I say I am stepping in and I am taking responsibility for you, myself, and for your suffering and for your hardship and for your difficulties? Oh, it's the opposite of what's natural to us. It's the opposite of what the world says to do. The world says get rid of the drama from your life. Get rid of the, the people that need things from you. Get rid of the people that emotionally drain you. But love says, love says, I will be with you through your hardest day. I will stay up as late as it takes. I will listen to you as long as I need to listen to you. I will let you drain me and deplete me because you will not go through this alone. See, there's something about suffering, that suffering very often makes us selfish. I've experienced this personally. uh, I think I've mentioned the quote by Mark Leach to you guys once before, but it's a quote that I've I've often found true. And he says, a person with good health has a thousand dreams, and a person with poor health has only one. And I can think back over the last few years when my health wasn't good and I didn't feel good, and I just realized how inwardly I had turned, how, how my life had become all about my struggles, had all become about my hardships and my difficulties. And as the Lord is beginning to lift me out of this, this season and as my health has begun to return, one of the things that I've had to learn is I've had to detox from the selfishness that has come to just absorb so much of my life. And so there's a sense in which what Naomi is showing us is not just how we are to love, but she is showing us what a path forward out of suffering actually looks like. That sometimes in suffering, our, our tendency is to turn inwardly more and more and more and to look inside of myself more and more and more and focus on my hardships more and more and more. When truth be told, healing is very often found when I begin to look outside of myself. I begin to minister to you in your hardship. I begin to join you in your struggles. You share mine and I share yours and we're in this together. There's a solidarity that is among us. And so what she says there is she says, wash therefore, anoint yourself, put on your cloak and go down to the threshing floor. Now that seems odd to us because we don't live in a culture that's very much like this one. But here's what she's saying doing. Do. So you have Ruth, and Ruth would have been a widow wearing mourning clothes. She would have dressed in a particular way that let everybody know that she had lost her husband. So would Naomi. They would have been wearing garments and cloaks that were intended to communicate that they were in grieving and that they were, they were in sorrow and that they had experienced great suffering in their lives. It was, it was meant to be something that was, that was respectful of those that had just died and at the same time garner respect and garner care from those from within the community. 
And so it's powerful what, Ruth's, what Naomi says to Ruth. She says, it's time to take off the mourning gowns. It's time to take off the grieving garments. It's time to take off the sorrow. Let me join you in the midst of your hardship. Let me join you in the midst of your misery so that I can help you get to the other side of it. That there is a time for mourning, but there is a time for a new chapter, brothers and sisters. There is a time for tears and a time for sorrow, but there is a time in which we must close the door on that hardship and move forward into the next life. And here is Naomi wrapping her arm around her own daughter-in-law, her daughter-in-law, and saying, my daughter, it's time to move on from my son. Think of the love. Think of the power. Think of the poignancy in that moment. Daughter, it's time for you to reveal yourself as being eligible to other bachelors that might be in the land. It's time to carry your life on to the next season. And it is not done at a distance. It's not done at arm's length. It's done in love and care, saying, let me join you into the midst of this burden. And brothers and sisters, that is the responsibility that we are to take toward one another. To join each other in that kind of suffering and to help one another get through the hardships of life and get to the other side of life so that we're not going through it by ourselves and you're not going through it by yourselves. But there's a solidarity among us and that's why, that's why Paul says bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Next thing I want you to see this morning is that love is vulnerable. Love is vulnerable. That, so, so it says there, in verse 5, that you have all these instructions that are given by Naomi. She says, all right, take this off, put this on, smell like this. I, I like that they went to smell. They, I mean, they didn't exactly have like, you know, dove deodorant. So, you know, to smell nice in those days, you really had to go above and beyond. And so she's like, like, especially pay attention to how you smell. I appreciate that about Naomi. And, and so she, she gives her all, and she says, all right, go, go to him. And when you go there, lay, uncover his feet, lay at his feet a, a position of, 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 uh, submission, of respect, of subservience even. Lay yourself at his feet and then you do whatever he says to do. Now, what you need to understand is that this put Ruth in a very precarious position. It tells us that this was during the time of the threshing, okay? So what that means is, is that a few months have passed since chapter 2. Chapter 2, it's at the beginning of the barley harvest, and they, they'll harvest for a couple of months, and at the end of that, they'll come and they'll take it all to the threshing floor, which would have been on the side of a mountain far from home, and they're working day and night, and they're, they're breaking it and throwing it up, and the wind is blowing away the chaff, and the grain is falling down to the threshing floor. But what the men would do is the men would separate from their families for a period of time, and they would go away, and they would sleep day in, day out with the grain because they had to guard the harvest from potential threats and potential thieves. And so they would go there and they would, they would guard it and they would protect it. But as you can imagine, especially during the time of the judges when, when moral decay is reaching critical mass, it was a time in which many men would be found unfaithful to their wives. Men would go off and they would get drunk and then they would live these promiscuous lives with, with women that would come. And it became so prominent that in fact what would become very normal is prostitutes would go and they would visit these threshing floors. And there would be large crowds of men and the prostitutes would just climb into the bed with the men. 
And so you can imagine that this is taking place and this is going on. And so it is a, a, prime, a prime environment for a woman to be taken advantage of, for a woman to be violated, for a woman to be molested. And so here is Naomi. And she's saying, all right, here's what I want you to do, Ruth. I want you to smell real nice. I want you to look real pretty. I want you to put on your evening gown. And I want you to be sparkling and dressed to the nine and get all gussied up. I want you to, to go out in the middle of the night and go out to one of these threshing floors where there's going to be a lot of intoxicated men that are very probably looking for, for a good time and, and at your expense. And I want you to lay at one of those men's feet. And I want you just to do whatever he says. Now, I don't know how you would instruct your daughter, but I'm not telling mine any of that. Right? And I'm certainly never telling my daughter whatever a man tells you to do, you just do it. God help me. But look at how she responds. She says, all that you say, I will do. All that you say, I will do. And so this is a picture here of vulnerability for, for Ruth. That she is saying, I am placing my well-being in your hands, Naomi. Because I love you and because I am convinced that you love me, I believe that you want what's best for me. And I believe that what you have intended is good and not harm. What I believe you have intended is security and rest and not my destruction. And since I trust you, even though this is crazy and even though this seems outlandish, I'm going to do whatever you say do because I love you you and that's the nature of love the nature of love is a willingness to make yourself vulnerable isn't it listen to what listen listen to what happens next beginning in verse six it says so she ruth went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her and when boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And he said, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this kindness greater, this last kindness greater than the first, in that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. All right, there's a lot happening here. This is where our romantic comedy reaches fever pitch. You know what I'm saying? This is where everything is reaching critical mass. And if you were a reader in early, uh, in early Jewish culture, at this point, you're leaning up and you're on the edge of your seat. Let me, let me show you what I'm, what I'm talking there. It says that he went to lie down and then she came softly, uncovered his feet and lay down, okay? All three of these words are ambiguous words that if you read throughout the Old Testament are filled with sexual connotations. That, that all three of these words, to, to be uncovered is to be naked, feet is a euphemism for reproductive parts, and lay down is, again, very frequently used to discuss these types of relationships between men and women in the Old Testament. And so if, you were, if you're an early Jew, you're leaning up in your seat and you're like, wait, wait, they said this was a worthy man. 
They said this was a good man. Wait, wait, this, this young woman, she, she was one that, that, that said, he will be my God and I will be her, his daughter. I, I will do whatever he wants. I've, I'm banking my life on him. And so it's calling for you to, to lean up and say, what in the world is going on here? Where is this headed next? And where it's headed next, they could have never begun to understand. They could have never predicted. In a thousand rewrites of this story, they would have never been able to write it this way. That what happens next is not some X-rated mess. What happens next is stunning vulnerability on behalf of Ruth. But she leans forward and says the man was startled. By the way, the fact that he was startled that a woman in the middle of the night would show up in his bed shows the virtue. It's intended to communicate the virtue of Boaz, that this is not what he wanted. This was not what he was looking for. This was not what he expected. And behold, a woman lay at his feet. He says, who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant. Here's what that means. Warm me beneath your blanket. That she's saying, she's coming to him and she's saying, I'm cold and I need you to give me warmth. I'm lonely and I need you to give me company. I'm hungry and I need you to give me food. I'm vulnerable and I need you to protect me. In other words, what I need is I need for you to marry me. I need you to marry me. This was a euphemistic way in early Jewish culture for a proposal to happen, but it never happened this way. This is obliterating every social norm, every obstacle that would have been placed there. This is a woman proposing to a man. This is a Moabite proposing to a Jew. This is a servant proposing to her master. None of this makes sense. None of this is okay. None of this is expected. This is Ruth saying, here's my life. Here's my heart. I'm going to offer it all to you. And right now, you can trample it. Right now, you can wreck it. Right now, you can discard it. Right now, you can cast it out. Right now, you can crush it. Or you can receive it. And you can change my life forever. Total vulnerability. You see, to love is to risk. All of us know that. It it reminds us of the the song that we all, what is love? Baby, don't hurt me. Don't hurt me. No more. To love is to open yourself up to pain. It's to open yourself up to hurt. It's to reveal who you actually are and to face the potential of having who you actually are be rejected. Oh, I wonder how many wives in here you have taken your heart and you have offered it to your husband only to have him crush it. And it's happened over and over and over and now you've withdrawn and you are not vulnerable anymore. I wonder how many of you husbands, you you took out your heart and you offered a moment of weakness and total vulnerability and and it was weaponized against you and your your every fight, that that weakness is brought up time and again and now, now you are withdrawn and you won't offer it again. It's the nature of love, isn't it? 
The nature of love is to make yourself vulnerable. And in fact, brothers and sisters, what I want you to realize is that is how we have been loved. When God, the Lord, obligates himself to Israel, he opens up himself to vulnerability. Not to be diminished in any way, not to be manipulated in any way. That's blasphemy. But he opens himself up to be truly known by a people and yet be rejected by them. To have his name denigrated through the very people who was intended to make his name great. To have his name denigrated before the nations. And why did Jesus take on flesh? Why did Jesus take on a human nature? Jesus took on flesh and a human nature that he might be made vulnerable in our stead. That he might be rejected by us. That he might be betrayed by a kiss. That it might be recorded how he wept and cried over his friend. That he might be nailed to a tree. That he might be rejected by you and by me. To make himself vulnerable is the reason that Jesus did that. So what I want you to understand is this morning, that is how you are loved. And that is how you are called to love. If you are stonewalling your husband or your wife right now, you are not loving them in the way of Jesus. To be vulnerable is to be known. To be known, to be known is to be loved. To be known is to be close to someone else. There can be no intimacy where there is no vulnerability. If you're unwilling to confess your sins to another brother or sister in Christ because you fear their gossip or you fear their judgment toward you, that's not love. That's not love in the way of Christ. If they gossip about you, if they, if they judge you, brothers and sisters, that is the price of being loved. That is the price of pursuing love. Not being loved by that person, but seeking to be loved by someone in the image of Christ within the confines of the church. You know, I bet if we're serious about going to the nations, if we're serious about ministering to people in Afghanistan and in Swaziland, if we're serious about helping those around our community that are suffering, that, that are impoverished, there's a potential that we, might, that we might be taken advantage of. That we might give to someone who doesn't receive it with good faith. And so the, the, there can be a tendency in all of us when we're worried about judgment or when we're worried about being taking, taken advantage of or when we're worried about being gossiped about that we become short-armed, in love, unwilling to put ourselves out there, unwilling to be totally vulnerable. But the love of God has already secured you. The love of God has already nailed your feet to the floor. You are steady and sturdy, standing on the rock of Christ. So now you can risk one another. You can risk it with each other. Because that's what love is. That's how you've been loved. And that's how you must love one another. Lastly, I want you to see that love is secure. That love is secure. Let's read verse 11 through the end of the chapter. It says, And now, my daughter, this is Boaz talking, Do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask. For all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer. Yet there is a redeemer nearer than I remain tonight. And in the morning, if he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. 
So she lay at his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, bring the garment you were wearing and hold it out. So she held it out and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went into the city and when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, how did you fare, my daughter? And she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, These six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said to me, You must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. And she replied, Wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out. But the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. Remember, the chief issue here has been security from the beginning. To have rest. To know where your meals are coming from. To know that you are protected. To know that your inheritance has been secured. To be given the opportunity to have a future. And how does this come about? Well, we we see this in a couple of different ways. First of all, we see that it says that love is his love is voluntary. I think that's important for us to, to get because the, the author here is going to great lengths so that we can see how voluntary Boaz's love is for Ruth. So on one hand, on one hand, where it's pointed out that she he is not compelled to love her and to treat her well because of hormones. All right? And that's the best way that I know to, how, how to put it. But it, it, he comes and Look at how he responds. He says, how, oh, I'm sorry, I went, went too far. He calls her daughter. Daughter. You know what? That, that is a term of respect. So in a time, in a generation in which women are being denigrated, in a time in which women are being diminished, here is the man of God, and he is speaking of her respectfully. Oh, man of God, listen up. Man of God, listen up. In a time in which men and boys are talking about women like dogs, as the talk in the locker room is like a bunch of dogs. As Hollywood presents them as though they are some trophy to be gawked at rather than an image bearer of Almighty God to be adored. Let us stand against the current and say, my daughter, let us speak and treat them with respect. He says, do not fear, he comforts her. I will do for you all that you ask. For all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. Do you see what he's doing here? The attraction. Boaz isn't hiding. I think this is awesome, and it's hard to pick up in the, in the English. Boaz is not hiding that he's attracted to Ruth. He's not hiding that. But here's what he's saying. I'm drawn to the fact that you are a respectful woman. I'm drawn to the fact that you are a worthy woman. This is that Proverbs 31 woman that we've ta- uh, word that we talked about earlier. This is the virtuous woman, a woman of character, a woman of of reputation. Everybody knows that even though you're a Moabite and even though you're a foreigner, that you stand heads and shoulders morally above everyone else says, no, you are a provider. You have sacrificed for Naomi. And so he's drawn to that. And so the picture here is this is not some some God driven by his hormones to react in a, in a moment to a, a good-smelling, gussied-up woman that's laying at his feet. This is a man who is intent on treating her respectfully as the worthy woman that she is. Not only that, not only that, he says in verse 12, And now it is true that I am a redeemer, but there is a redeemer nearer than I. So he's not compelled by hormones, but it's also in important to see that he's not compelled by the law. That actually she's not his responsibility. He doesn't have to redeem her. Uh Uh-oh. Sorry about that. He doesn't have to redeem her. In other words, 
He doesn't have to. He wants to. He desires to. It's not his duty. It's his delight. Now think about how that speaks to security. And you already know this intuitively. If, if their bond is built on attraction, their love is as insecure as that attraction is. As soon as the attractiveness goes, the love will go. If their love is bound as a result of duty, if he is compelled because of the law, because of some responsibility that he has, their love will fade as quickly as the duty becomes too much to bear. But if it's voluntary, if it's joyful, if it's his delight and not his duty, if it's his passion and not his job, if it's her character and not her attractiveness, that won't fade, brothers and sisters. That won't fade. And that is how we have been loved. You understand, it is the delight of God to love you. It is the delight of God to love you. It's not his job. It's not his responsibility. It wasn't his duty. He didn't have to do it. He volunteered to love you. He chose Israel out of all the nations of the earth, not because Israel was great, because God was great, and he wanted them to know how great he was. And the greatest thing that may, we may be able to say about the cross is that Jesus wasn't forced to the cross. Nobody twisted his arm behind his back and pinned him down and took him to the cross. Remember what he said. He said, if I wished, I would call legions of angels down and they would wipe you from the earth. Now what's beautiful about the cross is that Jesus went there willingly, voluntarily, for me and for you. That is, what's beautiful about it is it's secure. You can't ruin it, man. You can't out the love that is found on the cross. You can't out-shame the grace that is found on the cross. That Jesus doesn't just love you, he likes you. He's come. He's come in pursuit of you. That you could be secured within his love. That brings me to the last thing I want you to see. And that is that it's not just voluntary, it's assured. It's not just voluntary, it's assured. So, so, so get the picture. So he says, I'm going to, so, so you're going to be redeemed. He says this, right? It, it may be this guy, it may be me, I hope it's me. And we're going to get to chapter 4, we're going to see that Boaz rehearses this whole speech to kind of try to like talk the guy out of redeeming Ruth and the property because he really wants to marry Ruth. He says, but write this down, you know this right now, you are secure, you will be redeemed. And so he gives her, oh, y'all, this is good. Y'all, 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 come on. Y'all, come on. This is good. This is good. He says, hand out your garment. He says, I'm not sending you back to that woman empty-handed. I know Naomi. I know, I'm not messing with your mother-in-law. We don't, we don't mess with mother-in-laws where I come from. Hand out, your, hand out your, your garment. And he fills it filled with like 60 pounds of grain. So here you can imagine she's carrying it back on her head. And Naomi sees her coming and says, how did you fare, my daughter? Oh, oh, he says, he says, I'm going to be redeemed. And he says, I couldn't come back to you empty-handed. And he says, you, you can imagine that, that young bride, that, that young in-love woman beginning to speak almost so quickly that, that her words are outrunning her mouth. You see, what he had given her was a down payment on her bridal endowment. 
what he had given her was the first fruits of the security that was to come. That by giving her that garment filled with grain, what he was saying is you are already secure. You are already spoken for. You are already redeemed. You have already, the matter has already been settled. And I am giving you this to make sure that you know I am going to back up my word. I am going to come through on my promise. I am going to secure you from this day forward for the rest of your life. Here is the first fruits. Here is the down payment of what it is. You see, she was already secure. She just wasn't home yet. She just wasn't home yet. Boaz was going to bring her home, but the grain, the grain was the down payment to prove it was so. Listen to me, Christian. You're already secure. You're already secure by the blood of Jesus Christ. Let me stand up for a second. You are already secured. You have already, John chapter 5 says, pass through the judgment. You are already on the other side, pleading, saying, don't look at my righteousness. It is as rags. Look at the righteousness of Jesus. It's mine. His garment is my garment. I have been placed beneath his blanket. You're just not home yet. You're just not home yet. But do you know what the Bible says the resurrection is? The resurrection is the first fruits of your resurrection. Do you know what the Bible says the Holy Spirit is? The Holy Spirit is the seal of your salvation. It is the down pay- He is the down payment for what has already been secured on your behalf. The comforter lives with you because one day you will be home and you will only be comforted. The helper is with you because he is going to help you now. And one day, one day, you are going to be in the presence of the living God. And you will not need any help to his presence because the living Christ will usher you there. So right now, right now there is suffering. And right now there is hardship. And right now there are tears. And right now there are difficulties. But one day, one day, as you stand there holding the first fruits of what you've been given, you're going to be home. You're going to be home. Christian, you're going home. Let's pray to the Lord together. Thank you for watching or listening to one of our sermons. We would love to have the opportunity to connect with you one-on-one. We are not a perfect church, but we are a joyful church, and we want to help you increase your joy in Christ. We would love for you to come and worship with us one day soon. You'll be able to find information about our worship services, about who we are, what we believe, what we do, what we're hoping to accomplish on our website at ironcity.org. We would invite you to go and to check out all the information there. We look forward to seeing you soon.